We now continue the study in the book of the Atonement by Arthur W. Pink, chapter 14, The Atonement and Its Results, continued. Sins to come cannot be properly said to be pardoned, for till they are committed we are not guilty of them. This would not be so much a pardon as an indulgence and license to sin. Thus a man once converted could no otherwise than fervently pray, forgive us our sins. It would take away care of avoiding sins to come and repentance for what is past. Daily sins displease God and deserve death. T. Manton, volume 22, page 52. At conversion we receive the divine forgiveness of all our past sins, 2 Peter 1.9, but forgiveness of present sins must be sued for daily. Keep short accounts with God, Christian reader. Constantly pleading the promise of 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Section E, its requirements. First, turning from sin unto God. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55, 7. God will not remit the guilt while a man's heart remains in love with sin and he continues in the practice of it. If he did, he would compromise his holiness and encourage us in doing evil. Christ died not to reconcile God to our sins or to pardon our sins while we remain in them, but to bring us back again to the service and enjoyment of God, T. Manton. The prodigal must leave the far country ere he can turn his face towards the Father's house. Second, repentance. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, Acts 8.22. Repentance towards God signifies the willingness to return to the duty, love, and obedience which we owe him as our Creator, and from whence we have fallen by our folly and sin. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, Acts 5.31, as we must distinguished between God's viewing his elect in the purpose of his grace and the sentence of his law, so we must between Christ's having purchased pardon and his now dispensing it according to the laws of his meditorial kingdom. Third, faith, the price of our forgiveness, was paid when Christ died, but our actual admission into and possession of the privileges is not ours until we are planted into him by a living faith. Whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins, Acts 1043, see 1338, 39, and also 26.18. By faith alone we obtain and receive the forgiveness of sins, for notwithstanding any antecedent act of God concerning us and, and for Christ, we do not actually receive a soul-freeing discharge until we believe. John Owen. Faith is as necessary in an instrumental way as Christ's satisfaction was in the meritorious way. Faith is a link of connecting between the blessings purchased by Christ and the soul's enjoyment of them. Faith is that which appropriates the benefits of Christ unto itself. What are the marks of true evidence of a pardoned man? First, genuine affection for God and Christ. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Luke 7:47. The latter was the effect of the former. Second, a reverential awe for God. There is a forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared, Psalm 134. A pardoned soul will no longer rush heedlessly into sin. 
Third, a spirit without guile, Psalm 32.2, that is, a heart that is sincere in seeking the glory of God and desires to please Him in all things, see Ephesians 6.24, where God pardons, He places His law in the heart, Hebrew 8.10 and 12. Fourth, mourning for sin, where the heart is unbroken and unmelted, the condemnation of God rests upon it, see Luke 7.38. Fifth, the power of indwelling sin is broken. He will subdue our iniquity, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. Micah 7.19 God never does the one without the other. Justification and sanctification are inseparable. Sixth, praise and thanksgiving unto God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Psalms 103.23 Seventh, a genuine spirit of forgiveness toward those who wrong us. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. Luke 11.4 Chapter 15 The Atonement, Its Results, Continued In previous chapters, we have pointed out the importance of distinguishing between the work which Christ performed and the results which that work produced. The need for so doing is great if we are to obtain anything more than a confused view of it. Unfortunately, many have sadly failed at this point, so that neither they nor their readers have been able to apprehend separately the various parts of the vast whole. Noticeably has this been the case with that aspect of our theme which is now to be before us. Though the work of the Lord Jesus was one and is indivisible, yet as we saw when pondering its nature, it needs to be viewed from various angles. For this reason, among others, the typical altar of sacrifice was not round but four square, Exodus 27. One, In like manner, though the results secured by Christ's work was also one and indivisible, namely securing the eternal salvation of all for whom he transacted, yet that composite result of that glorious salvation can best be understood when we contemplate its several sides. We now take up number three, redemption. Not a few have regarded atonement and redemption as being synonymous terms, but they are not so. Though closely, yea, inseparably connected, they are nevertheless capable of being considered separately, the one being the cause of which the other is the effect. Because Christ offered unto God a full and an accepted satisfaction, the redemption of his people is a certain fruit, consequence, and reward of the same. The result of Christ's mediation and the character of the salvation which he secured for God's elect can be most easily grasped when we set out under those four words, reconciliation, remission, redemption, and righteousness. By saying above that the result of Christ's satisfaction is as indivisible as the work itself, we mean that when one of these blessings is imparted, the other three always accompany it. Near the beginning of our last chapter, we pointed out how close is the connection between reconciliation and remission of sins, 2 Corinthians 5.19, and to link up this one with the preceding, we would note how intimate is the relation existing between remission and redemption. In Ephesians 1.7 we read, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Sins are forgiven or remitted by the redeeming blood. The preposition should be duly noted here. It is not through whom we have redemption, which presents another phase altogether, but in whom. Redemption was the Christian's right not only when the Spirit applied it to him at his regeneration, but also when Christ died, just as we had 
condemnation in Adam before we were born into this world. So the elect have redemption in Christ since the time that he was raised from the dead. Note that believing is not mentioned in Ephesians 1 till verse 12. Redemption through the blood is our forgiveness. Not that we are actually pardoned in the blood of his cross before we believe, but that the pardon was procured by the redeeming blood, the grant of it then was sealed, and security given that it should in due time be made unto us. The greatness of redemption may best be perceived by contemplating the person of the Redeemer. To none other than the Son of God was entrusted that work which was to secure redemption for his people. The greater the person who is employed in a work, the greater is that work. It is thus in the reckoning and the ways of men, how much more shall it be so in the wisdom and ways of God. Kings do not send their sons out on petty errands or trivial services, but only upon that which is high and weighty, and can it be imagined that the king of kings would send forth his son to redeem unless that he had involved a work of transcendent magnitude? The creating of the universe was a vast enterprise, but God dispatched it with a single fiat. He spoke and it was done, Psalms 33.9, but to effect redemption, God sent his own son from heaven to earth to live and die. Oh, how great a work was this, the greatest that himself ever undertook. In approaching this blessed subject of redemption, let us consider a its signification. The term redemption is barred from certain pecuniary transactions among men as the release of an imprisoned debtor by liquidating his debt or the deliverance of a captive by paying a ransom. These are transactions with which mankind in general and especially the Jews and primitive Christians have been perfectly familiar. Accordingly, both in the Hebrew and Greek scriptures, the deliverance of man from sin is frequently represented by language borrowed from such negotiations. The term before us is of this nature. It involves all the ideas included in atonement. It supposes sin, which is the cause of imprisonment or captivity. It supposes deliverance by a substitute, the captive or debtor being unable to effect his own escape. And, of course, it supposes also a clear emancipation or restoration as a result of the ransom being paid. W. Symington. The terms ransom and redemption, when used in connection with the work of Christ, are correlative in their import, the former denoting the price paid for the liberation of a prisoner, the latter marking the deliverance which is thus effected. The use of them in connection with our salvation shows that this is brought about by the interposition of a substitute who procures the emancipation of the captive by the tendering of his ransom. By their sins, men are brought under obligation to the law and justice of God, which he will not gratuitously fail to demand, and which they are quite incapable of discharging. To the law of God they are debtors, to the justice of God the prisoners. Their deliverance or salvation is not a manumission without price, that is, a simple discharge without compensation. Their salvation is not by an act of power only, effected by the intervention of an arm full of might to secure their escape. Both gratuitous favor, parenthesis grace, and power are concerned, yet there was more. A price had to be paid, a ransom laid down, every way equivalent to the redemption for which it was offered. Thus, redemption is delivered by ransom. It is possible to conceive, parenthesis in human affairs, of a price being paid and then, through some miscarriage of justice, the prisoner not being freed. But in that case, it would not be a redemption, even though the ransom had been accepted. So also, we may suppose a case where a captor, moved by compassion, freed his prisoner, 
Yet, though emancipated, he could not be said to have been redeemed. Two things are absolutely necessary to a redemption, a ransom paid and the setting free of the subject of person purchased. The two things, though intimately related, are clearly distinguished in Jeremiah 31.11. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of him that was stronger than he. And again, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death, Hosea 13.14. Thus, we say again, redemption is the payment of a ransom and the release of the ransomed. Hence, it is strictly limited to the people of God. In no sense are the reprobate redeemed. Election and redemption are of the same extent. They relate to the same individuals, to all such and to none else. To affirm that any whom Christ redeemed are now in hell is a flat contradiction in terms, for hell is a prison, Matthew 5:25, 1 Peter 3:19. The deliverance or redemption which the ransom price paid by Christ to divine justice has effected consists of three parts. First, there is a complete delivery of his people from the guilt or penalty of sin. This is their justification. This is set forth in such scriptures as the following, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. Second, there is in this life a blessed deliverance from the dominion and bondage of sin. This is their sanctification. This is set forth in such passages as these who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Galatians 1.4 Forasmuch as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, but with precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1.18.19 Third, there is, at the second coming of Christ, final deliverance from the very presence of sin. This is their glorification. This is contemplated in Luke 21.28 Lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh, and waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, Romans 8.23. Redemption is a setting free of those who have been ransomed. The Greek word for redemption is actually rendered delivered in Hebrews 11.35, not accepting deliverance, which means they refuse to accept release from their afflictions on the terms offered by their persecutors, namely upon the condition of renouncing their faith. Christ is therefore denominated not only the Redeemer, but the Deliverer, Romans 11:26. That from which he has emancipated his people is set forth in the following passages. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3:13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, Colossians 1:13. Which delivered us from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1:10. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who, through fear of death, were all their lifetime subject to bondage, Hebrews 2, 14, 15. Let us next consist, consider B, its implication. Redemption necessarily supposes predisposition. It denotes the restoring of something that has been lost and that by the paying of a price. Thus we find Christ saying by the spirit of prophecy, I restored that which I took not away, Psalm 69, 4. This was strikingly illustrated in the history of Israel who on the farther shores of the Red Sea, saying, Thou in thy mercy hast led forth thy people which thou hast redeemed. Exodus 15.13 First, in the book of Genesis, we see the descendants of Abraham sojourning in the land of Canaan. See Hebrews 11.9 Later, we see the chosen race in cruel servitude in bondage to the Egyptians, groaning amid the brick kilns and under the whip of the taskmasters. 
Then a ransom was provided in the blood of the Paschal Lamb, following which the Lord, by his mighty hand, brought them out of serfdom and brought them into the promised inheritance. In the above type we see three things, a people who were the Lord's, a people in bondage lost to him, a people recovered and restored to him. Says someone, but how can all these things hold good in the antitype? I can see that Christians were once the devil's captives, now freed by Christ, but how were they his before he freed them? Scripture supplies a satisfactory explanation. The type is just as true and accurate in the first three points as it is in the second and third. That the redeemed belonged to Christ long before he shed precious blood to ransom them. They were his by the eternal election of God, his by the Father's love gift. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, John 17:6. Yes, they were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, 4. But in Adam all died, 1 Corinthians 15:22. Therefore did he come back to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19:10. But through his blood he recovered them. The church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood, Acts 20:28. 20, Thus the implication of redemption is a double one. First, all the members of Christ's church belong to him in eternity past. Second, through the fall they were brought into bondage. All men in their unrenewed state are slaves to sin and Satan and under the wrath of God. Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. John 8.34 Ere Christians were regenerated, serving divers lusts and pleasures, Titus 3.3, described their awful state. In the bondage of our ignorance, we supposed that we were free, imagining that liberty consisted of the power to do as we liked instead of as we ought. Little did we dream that we were in the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him in his will, 2 Timothy 2.26. Nor could we free ourselves. Sin's chains were far too strong for human might to snap. Satan saw to it that we should not break out of his prison house. Man, as a fallen creature, is no more a free agent than he is a sinless being. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. John 8.36 would be quite meaningless if the natural man already possessed liberty. But people will no more bow to this flesh-humbling truth today than they would when Christ himself uttered it. We be Abraham's seed and were never in bondage to any man. John 8.33 was the haughty but lying boast of the Jews. Hence it is that so few seek the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, knowing not that they are bound, they suppose they are already free. This is one of the outstanding marks of those Laodicean days, men boasting that they are rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing, knowing not that they are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, Revelation 3.17. Yes, redemption presupposes bondage, happy the one who has his or her eyes open to see the need for a mightier hand than their own striking off the shackles of self-will, self-love, and self-righteousness, which by nature bound and held them fast. We now turn to consider C, its effectuation. Sin is a debt whereof God is the creditor. Matthew 6.12 Debts render men liable to imprisonment for non-payment. So sin has caused God to shut them all up in unbelief, Romans 11.20.32. Nor can any escape till the uttermost farthing has been paid, Matthew 5.26. Man, by his disobedience to God, has been brought to a state of object wretchedness, 
such wretchedness as Scripture often expresses by captivity, Isaiah 61.1, Psalm 126.4, 2 Timothy 3.6. The Lord, because of our rebellion, both in Adam and personally, did as the supreme judge and governor deliver us unto Satan and left us under the power of sin and death. Satan, as a jailer, led us captive at his will, making use of sin and the world as fetters to increase and continue our misery. Wherein in times past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lusts of our place, Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. From this dreadful state none but Christ could deliver us. In every place in Scripture where our redemption in and by Christ is mentioned, there is an allusion to the law of redemption among the Jews. This law is set forth most fully in Leviticus 25, where we find regulations laid down for a twofold redemption of person and possessions. None had a right to redeem, but either the person himself who had made the alienation, or some other that was near to kin of him. But inasmuch as none of Adam's race ever was or ever will be able to redeem himself, another must interpose on his behalf if ever he is to be delivered. This is expressly affirmed by God. None of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. Psalm 49.7 Thus, poor sinners were entirely shut up to the merciful intervention of Christ. It was by him and him alone this blessed promise was to be fulfilled. Thus saith the Lord, Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children. Isaiah 49.25 The Redeemer must be kinsman. The man is near of kin to us, one that hath the right to redeem. Ruth 2.20 margin. Thus the covenant oneness of Christ and his people underlies the truth of redemption. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Hebrew 2.11 One from all eternity, one by him having been appointed their head. But not only must the Redeemer be federally united to those he redeems, but he must also take upon him their nature and enter their circumstances. Therefore we are told, Forasmuch then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them. Hebrew 2, 14, 15. So we read again, God sent forth his son, native woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. The incarnation of the Son of God most strikingly fulfilled another Old Testament type of redemption. The Mosaic law provided that, in case any person was found murdered, then the nearest to him in blood was to prosecute the murderer and bring him to justice, and this nearest relation, thus avenging the murderer, is called by the name Gal, or Redeemer rendered revenger in Numbers 25:19. Satan was a murderer from the beginning, John 8:44, who had given both body and soul a mortal wound of sin, which was certain death and eternal misery. And the Redeemer came to avenge the murderer. He took our cause in hand as being our nearest kinsman, and it cost him his own life to avenge ours. William Romaine, 1750. To which we may add, through his death, Christ destroyed parenthesis, rendered nil, him that had the power of death, Hebrew 2.14. 
having accepted the office of Redeemer, having become one with his people in taking upon him their nature, it was required that he should pay the ransom price which divine justice required. Now, a ransom is something given in the stead of what is ransomed, and this was the vicarious life and death of the Lord Jesus. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many, Matthew 20:28. 20, Redemption views Christ as our surety, Hebrews 7:25, taking upon him the liabilities of God's elect and paying to God the price of their remission. Christ is the great paymaster of his people's debts, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance, Hebrews 9.15. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24, in the first clause the inestimable blessing of justification is ascribed to the free grace of God, being altogether apart from our works, either before or after faith. In the second clause it is attributed to Christ's redemption, though we are justified gratuitously Yet it is through the purchase of the Son of God. Believers are said to have been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6.20. To whom was the ransom paid? It seems strange that any Christian should experience difficulty in answering such a question, yet even some able Bible students have erred seriously on this point, arguing that sinners were never in bondage to God and that they are the captives of the devil. A theory has been invented that the price of our ransom was paid to Satan himself which theory can only be rightly denominated diabolical redemption. Once this theory is held up in its naked hideousness, every renewed soul ought to shrink from it in horror. Surely there is a vast difference between sinners being the captives of the devil and his having any legitimate property rights over them. That man is a slave of Satan is only a secondary result of his bondage. Who delivered him over to Satan on account of his sins? Only one answer is possible. God himself. It is by divine justice that the sinner is bound over to punishment. The devil is only the executioner of God's righteous sentence. It is to God himself the debt of obedience and suffering is due. It is God alone who has the right to detain him in prison. The detaining power is the equity of the divine law and government for, for which Satan could not hold him in thraldom a single moment. Therefore, it was to God, to his inflexible justice, that Christ paid the ransom price. Man had not sinned against Satan, but against the divine lawgiver, to whom alone it belongs to condemn or absolve. And God being satisfied, the devil has no power over the redeemed, but is put out of office, as the executioner has nothing to do when the judge and the law are satisfied. To say that Christ offered himself a ransom unto Satan is the most horrible blasphemy. Satan was to be conquered, not satisfied. Our enslaving foe was but the subordinate instrument of God's righteous judgment. Why, he cannot so much as tempt men without the immediate permission of God, how much less could he demand from God the precious, precious blood of Christ? The ransom which was paid for our redemption was the blood of Christ, First Peter 1.19. This is sometimes set forth as a price, sometimes as a sacrifice. These are but one and the same thing under several notions. Now, as the sacrifice was offered unto God, Ephesians 5, 2, so was the price paid to God, paid to his justice, paid to him in his character of judge and governor. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, Colossians 1, 13 and 14. The latter verse explains the particular nature of the deliverance in the previous one. 
It is not a mere release as of a slave liberated by the compassion of his masters, nor that of a debtor set free by his constant entreaties by his creditor, nor by the exercise of force only, as Abraham delivered Lot and David his followers from the Amalekites at Ziklag, but this deliverance from Satan's dominion is a redemptive, a discharge by a ransom price paid down, and there was a redeeming all that was due the law by the substitute and surety. The shedding of his blood was the last and greatest act of his meditorial work on earth. Thus Christ purchased his people out of the hands of vindictive justice. Thereby he fulfilled that remarkable messianic prophecy in Isaiah 45:13, I have raised him up in a righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives. Not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. The last clause signifies it was not for personal gain that Christ did this. It was not for price, though he effected it by price. Because Christ bought us, 1 Corinthians 6.20, we are out of debt, free. There is not a single charge on the heavenly docket against any of his people. No debtor's prison now awaits them. Thou shalt by no means come out hence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing, Matthew 5.26. These terrible and hope-destroying words shall never be spoken to any of the redeemed. Because the representative of God's people was seized by the law, those whom Christ represented must go free. Beautifully was this adumbrated in John 18.8, If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. Christ's death was the believer's discharge. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Romans 8.33 On that day shall a priest make an atonement for you, to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Leviticus 16.30 if the typical blood so effectively cleansed the people ceremonially, how much more must the antitypical sacrifice perfectly and eternally deliver from sin? The outcome of the ransom price paid by Christ is a certain and actual redemption of his people. There is no unavailing redemption in any of the Old Testament types. If land was redeemed, restoration to its original owner was the certain outcome. If persons were redeemed, then liberty was actually enjoyed by them. Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Job 33:24. Is God God's authoritative fiat. Payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. Because Christ paid to the full the whole debt for which his people owed, justice demands that the debtors should be liberated. Therefore the unqualifying word goes forth, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. Isaiah 35.10 D. Its Application Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Luke 1.70 Church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Acts 20.28 20, It is never said in Scripture that Christ died to purchase salvation. It is always his flock, his people, his church. The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance, Deuteronomy 32.9, and the elect are not only God's inheritance, but his purchased possession, Ephesians 1.14. By his death, Christ paid the ransom price that made his people, whom sin had taken prisoners, his own. Therefore does the Father say to him, As for thee, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit wherein is no water, Zechariah 9.11. Christ has a legal right to their persons, and therefore does God by his strong arm, parenthesis, in his own appointed time, bring them forth. He sent redemption unto his people, 
Psalms 1, 11, 9. Redemption is unto an inheritance. Galatians 4, 5, and 7. Ephesians 1, 14. Now, just as an earthly parent reserves to himself the right to say, parenthesis, in his will, at what age his heirs shall enter upon his estate, so God has appointed the time when each of his redeemed ones shall be freed from the dominion of sin, and when the whole election of grace shall enter in their inheritance. As we have seen, the deliverance which Christ procured for his people is threefold, so also is its application. First, they are freed from the guilt of sin when the Spirit first works faith in them, and they are enabled to believe in Christ, Galatians 5.1. Second, they are gradually delivered from the power of indwelling sin, as through the Spirit they are led to mortify the deeds of the body, Romans 8.13. Third, they are completely emancipated from the presence of sin, when there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away all ungodliness from Jacob, Romans 11.26. Each of these is redemptive by power in contrast from by price. Exodus 6, 6, Nehemiah 1, 10, Psalm 77, 15. For the same reason, the resurrection of the body by an act of divine power is called a redemption. Roman 8:23. E, its manifestations. Redemption is unto life, a life of godliness. Being now made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Romans 6:22. Those whom Christ has ransomed are given grace to live a holy life, freed from the bondage of their former corruptions, redeemed from your vain conversation with the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1.18. Those who are not delivered from their previous vain manner of life are not redeemed from hell and damnation unless God gives them repentance. Let every reader test himself or herself by this sure and certain rule. You have not savingly believed that Christ laid down his life for you unless you are now yielding up your life to him. Note the words in time past in Ephesians 2.2. 2, Christ has redeemed none that they might continue in a course of self-pleasing. That we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Luke 1.74.75 Whenever God pardons sin, he subdues it, Micah 7.19. Then is the condemning power of sin taken away when the commanding power of it is taken away. If a malefactor be in prison, how shall he know that his prince hath pardoned him? If a jailer come and knock off his chains and fetters and let him out of prison, then he may know that he is pardoned. If so, if we walk at liberty, Psalm 119.45, in the ways of God, this is a blessed sign he has pardoned us written by Thomas Watson, 1690. Let none make any mistake on this point. Scripture says, Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, Galatians 1.4. If then you are still in love with the world, a slave to its passions, a follower of its ways, a companion of its people, you are yet in your sins. Christ gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Titus 2.14 Christ offers himself to none as a Savior who are unwilling to submit to him as their Lord. True, he has redeemed us from the curse of the law, but most certainly not from the righteous requirements of the law. The people of God have been redeemed from their misery, not from their duty. We have been redeemed to God, Revelation 5.9. Renunciation of the world, denial of self, and a daily walk to the glory of God are the sure marks of all the redeemed. 
Chapter 16, The Atonement, Its Results Continued Numerous and fearful have been the errors into which many have fallen when treating of the results of the perfect satisfaction which Christ offered unto God on behalf of his people. Reconciliation has, on the one hand, been restricted to sinners throwing down the arms of their rebellion, whereas Scripture also plainly speaks of Christ having slain the enemy of the divine justice, Ephesians 2.16. While, on the other hand, some affirm that all, parenthesis, including the devil himself, have been reconciled to God, when the word declares that there are many who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. The remission of sins which Christ actually obtained for all he represented has been whittled down to a mere possibility of forgiveness which may or may not be procured by man according as their will shall determine. While so terribly has the glorious truth of redemption been perverted that thousands believe there are multitudes in hell for whom Christ shed his precious blood as a ransom price. May it please the Lord to use the preceding chapters to dissipate the fogs of heresy from the minds of many of our readers. Number four, righteousness. This is perhaps the most wonderful of all the results obtained by the artist work of our blessed Savior. Yet is it today in most professing Christian circles the least understood. If it be true that the blessed truths of reconciliation, remission, and redemption have been grievously and grossly misrepresented by many who have posed as teachers sent from God, that which is now to be before us has been flatly denied, held up to ridicule, and branded as a serious error by not a few of those who wish to be regarded as champions of orthodoxy. It is indeed painful to find the writings of men who staunchly upheld the divine inspiration of the scripture the deity of Christ, his virgin birth, and substitutionary death, defiled by a vicious repudiation of the principal consequence of his atoning sacrifice. But Satan is subtle, and the higher the reputation of a man for soundness in the faith, the happier is the enemy to employ him in his awful work of opposing God. But today that inestimably blessed truth which we now desire to set before the reader, parenthesis, as the Lord is pleased to enable, is not so much denied as it is ignored. That which is the crowning glory of the gospel, Roman 1.17, that by which God has supremely displayed his infinite wisdom, 1 Corinthians 2.17, that which should most of all render the Redeemer precious to his people, Psalm 71.14.16, and that which ought to be the chief object of the believer's joy, Isaiah 61.10, is now left out of almost all so-called evangelical ministries. Even where Christ is presented as the sinner's only hope and his blood as the only cleanser of sin, that which secures a title for heaven, that which alone can render a sinner acceptable before the judge of all the earth, that which is the ground upon which he pronounces the ungodly justified, is missing from the best preaching and writing of this degenerate age. At best, only a half-gospel is being proclaimed. Only the negative side of what Christ earned for his people is being set before them. Whether or not this criticism be too sweeping, we leave the reader to decide after he's read the remainder of this chapter. A. Its Nature Following our usual custom, let us first show the connection between our present theme and that which was before us in our last chapter. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Romans 3.24, here we are shown the infinite relation which exists between the believer's righteousness and his redemption. To justify is the opposite of to condemn, see Deuteronomy 25.1, Romans 8.33.34, and so forth. 
Not to condemn, a man is not to infuse evil unto him, but is to pronounce him a transgressor. As the condemning of a man does not make him guilty, but simply announces that he is so, to justify a man is not to make him good, but nor to infuse goodness to him, but is to declare that he is just. Justification is that formal sentence of the divine judge whereby he pronounces the one before him righteous. The ground upon which God pronounces this sentence is the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. As we showed in the last chapter, redemption is the consequence of a ransom price having been paid. The ransom price which the Lord Jesus offered unto the justice of God was that perfect satisfaction which he gave to the divine law, which consists of the entire course of his virtuous and meritorious life, culminating in the laying down of his life at the cross in obedience to his Father's command. John 10.18 and 14.31 Christ then magnified the law and made it honorable, Isaiah 42.21, by keeping it in heart and life, in thought and word and deed, and therefore God, in his character of law administrator and the judge of all the earth, has imputed the Savior's obedience to all who believe on him, and because they have that reckoned to their account, they are justified, declared righteous in the high court of heaven. The Christian is justified freely by God's grace because it was sovereign benignity which provided the mediator and his ransom. Yet that justification is not at the price of setting aside the claims of the law, but through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Thus grace reigns not at the expense of righteousness, but through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.21 Old Testament prophecy not only announced that the Messiah and mediator should make reconciliation for iniquity, but also that he would bring in everlasting righteousness. Daniel 9.24 the two were equally needed by us, the one to deliver from hell, the other to entitle unto heaven. The taking away of our sins was not sufficient. In this world, offenders are sometimes pardoned so as to be no longer liable to punishment, yet without being at the same time received in the favor, admitted to fellowship, and placed in a position of honor and privilege. But not so is it when a believing sinner is justified through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He obtains not only pardon from God, but favor and acceptance not only exemption from penalty of sin, but a title to the reward of righteousness. Accordingly, it is written, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith unto this grace, Francis's favor, wherein we stand, Romans 5, 1, 2. And again, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life, Titus 3, 7. Two things are required in order for our acceptance by God. The removal of our sins and making us righteous in the sight of his law. Man was impotent to affect the one as much as the other. We were no more able to get rid of our guilt than the Ethiopian can change his skin or the leopard his spots. Equally powerless were we to render unto God that perfect obedience which his justice demands, and that because of the weakness, parenthesis, without strength, Romans 5, 6. Of the flesh, Roman 8, 3. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, parenthesis, that is, our own performances, shall no flesh be justified in his sight, Roman 3, 20. Hence, if ever we were to be saved, one must come here and meet both of these needs on our behalf, not only suffer the penalty which our transgressions entailed, but also render to the law active and passive obedience, so as to merit righteousness for us. It is the utmost importance to understand the distinction between obeying the law and enduring punishment. 
The mere suffering, its penalty, can never bring in righteousness, as the damned in hell shall discover to their eternal anguish. Christ, in the room instead of his people, lived here a life of complete obedience to every demand of that law which they were responsible to keep, and then in his death he paid the full and entire penalty of that law which they had broken, and in this way he wrought out a complete righteousness for his church. Thus the authority of the law was fully vindicated, and its breach was fully avenged. There is a double exchange of place. Christ took ours, and we are given his. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. 2 Corinthians 8.9 There was therefore a twofold identification. Christ was made one with us, Hebrews 2.11.14. We are made one with him, Ephesians 5.30. We had no righteousness of our own. Now as believers we have received a perfect righteousness by imputation from Christ. Their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord, Isaiah 54:17. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, 
what he never knew.